Well, today's psalm helps us answer an important question. That is, how do you keep the faith when you feel dry and God feels distant? How do you keep the faith when you feel dry and God feels distant? If I'm honest, I feel this way a lot. Uh, Courtney was asking me um, yesterday, are you going to share any, uh, any stories from your life? And the reason that she could ask that question is because there are a lot of stories. Um, if I'm honest, this is not a rare feeling for me. It is a regular feeling. The truth is that Bible reading often feels like a chore, that it's hard for me to concentrate in prayer. It feels like I'm just talking to myself, that worship songs often feel stale. I wake up many mornings and I just feel discouraged and I doubt myself and I dread what I have to do that day. That's a regular feeling for me, not a rare feeling. How do you keep the faith when you feel dry and God feels distant? Growing up, preachers in the church that I grew up in would a lot of times share in the sermon, like, I was praying this week and, and God just spoke to me and he said, here's the word. And then they would preach the word that God had told them or whatever. And so I thought once I became a preacher that God would speak to me more regularly. And then I would have a fresh revelation to share with all of his people. And that wasn't my experience, still is not. I have a lot of charismatic friends uh, from college and they um, you know, have fresh visions from the Lord all the time. And I went to some, you know, prayer meetings with them at times and uh, some crazy stuff happens in those meetings. And um, I asked God to, you know, give me some of the gifts of the spirit and to help me have some of these fresh revelations myself. Didn't happen. And I wonder, somebody's having a good time. Um, I wonder why that is. But I've also learned that um, it's hard to be honest about that. It's hard to be honest about that because if I feel dry and God feels distant, the assumption is that I must be doing something wrong, that I must be guilty of something. And so what happens many times, I think, is we just kind of pretend because if we're honest that we feel dry and that God feels distant, then maybe there's something wrong with us. But what's interesting about Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 is here you have a man who feels spiritually dry and distant from God, yet He's keeping the faith. This is not a man who's done anything terribly wrong. He hasn't turned his back on God. And yet he's brutally honest about the fact that he feels dry and God feels distant. 
And I think that there's something for us to learn there. I think Psalm 42 and 43 show us that it's okay to feel dry and for God to feel distant. In fact, it might even be a normal experience for you walking with God. And maybe you're a new Christian here today and you need to hear that because maybe nobody told you. And you can remember coming to faith and it wasn't that long ago. And there was this new excitement that you had, this new energy, this new passion that you had to read your Bible, to be around Christians, to sing, to come to church, to do Christian stuff. And all of a sudden that is starting to diminish. And maybe because you didn't expect that, you're now talking yourself into thinking, maybe this was all just a hoax to begin with. Maybe those feelings I had were not really grounded in anything real at all. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you've felt dry and distant from God or from a divine experience of some kind. And so you're curious about how you could go about experiencing some kind of renewed spirituality. And you need to know that the Christian faith is not one where the moment that you embrace it, you'll just, you know, be, you know, galloping through the meadows the rest of your life on some kind of spiritual high. Psalm 42 and 43 give us permission to have faith in God and yet feel dry and like God is distant. And maybe this freaks you out. I was talking to someone recently who was freaked out because she had been so on fire for the Lord and yet now things were getting hard. She was in a new season of life new circle of friends, new job. And she didn't have the same passion that she had before. Is there something wrong with me? She was asking. Maybe you have listened to the message from last week, Psalm chapter one, and you want to be a tree. You want to be a tree, not a tumbleweed. If you start to feel dry and like God is distant, are you becoming a tumbleweed? Are you doing it wrong? Becoming a tree, becoming a person of profound faith and happiness does not mean becoming someone who never feels dry and distant from God. Instead, becoming a tree happens by knowing what to do when you feel dry and God feels distant. Psalm 42 and 43 not only show us that it's okay to feel dry and for God to feel distant, but it also shows us what to do when that happens. How do you keep the faith when you feel dry and God feels distant? It is possible to do. So, if you have a Bible, Psalm 42 and 43 is where we'll be today. The reason that we're doing Psalm 42 and 43 
is because I think that originally these were the same psalm. The little heading tells us a lot about this psalm. You'll notice this, that little small print under Psalm 42. It says, for the choir director, a maskil of the sons of Korah. This psalm, Psalm 42 and 43, was a song written for the choir director in ancient Israel. They had a guy who would, you know, get up there. I don't know how it worked back then, but somehow or another, they were singing some songs when they got together for worship. And this was one of the songs that they would sing. It had been written specifically for that purpose. And it says that it was a maskil of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a family of worship leaders. They were artists who would write songs. And a maskil, we don't exactly know what that is, but from what we can tell, a maskil is a song that's meant to teach us something. And so that's what Psalm 42 and 43 is. It's a song that's meant to teach us something. And because it's a song, it's organized like a song. And this is kind of an interesting song because it's organized like a modern song. Um, there's a verse and a chorus. Here's the structure. Verse one is verses one through four. And then you got the chorus in verse five. Verse two is verses six through 10. And then you got the chorus in verse 11. Verse three is chapter 43, verses one through four. And then you got the chorus again in verse five. Do you notice that in the text? The way this is organized? It's pretty interesting. You've got a verse and a chorus. The chorus is gonna repeat three times. The situation that this person is writing from, he's away from Jerusalem, possibly away from the land of Israel. He's depressed and he's being mocked by people who don't follow God. And so he writes this song to teach us how to keep the faith when we feel dry and God feels distant. So here's the sermon today is we're going to look at five things that this Psalm teaches us about how to keep the faith when you feel dry and God feels distant. Five things. Here's the first one. When you feel dry and God feels distant, thirst for God. Thirst for God. Look at what he says in verses one through four. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while all day long people say to me, where's your God? I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful and thankful shouts. This is a man who has learned to thirst for God. Now, think about thirst for just a minute. He says, I thirst as a deer thirsts for water or as a deer is longing for water. And have you ever seen a deer running? 
I've seen mostly the deer that I've seen have been crossing the street. And they, maybe they were looking for water. I don't know. Most of them seem to take their time uh, for me. Um, I did see some deer in Israel. I was going to put a picture up on the screen that I had taken on my own iPhone. Uh, but the picture quality was pretty poor for the screen. So I decided not to do that. But you can see these little deer in Israel that dash through the desert and are just going super fast on these hills, and it's pretty interesting. Um, but, but think about thirst for just a minute. When you get thirsty, it's your body's way of letting you know that you need more water, right? And if you ignored that craving long enough, what would happen to you? You would die. That's not, you know, rocket science, right? You got to drink water to live. But what's interesting about that is when you start to feel thirsty, you know what to do for your body. But what about when your soul starts to be thirsty? When your soul starts to feel dry, what do you need? How do you answer that question? What do you think that your soul needs whenever you start to feel dry? Some people believe that maybe they just married the wrong person. Maybe the reason I'm feeling this way is I picked the wrong man. I picked the wrong woman. Maybe the way that I feel this way is because I've got the wrong job. If I worked in a better company, if I was in a better work environment, if I made more money, if we had more financial freedom and less financial stress, then we'd be fine. Then my soul would feel better. If I had different clothes, I just, when I look at this closet, there's just nothing to wear. But I would feel so much better about myself if we could get rid of all of this stuff. And if, could you just give me a budget to go shopping? Because I'm, I really think if I had new clothes, I would feel better. And that might be true. But then eventually you'll need new clothes again. If we had a different house, if we had a different car, if we had a boat, if we had a better boat, if I had my master's, if I had more connections, when your soul starts to feel dry, what do you think it needs? The psalmist has learned that God is the only one who can satisfy his soul. Do you believe that? C.S. Lewis writes a lot about this, but one of the sections that's most impactful to me, he says this, the longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. 
I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. He says, that thrill that you get when something's new and fresh, a new career, a new date, a new vacation, it eventually goes away, even for the best marriages and the best vacations. Then he says, when that dawns on you, you've got three options. You can keep searching until you find something. And this is how a lot of people live their lives. This wife didn't work out. We'll just get another one. Maybe that was the problem. She wasn't my soulmate. This job didn't work out. Well, we'll just get another one. This city wasn't for me. We'll just move. This house wasn't. We'll just get a new house. This car. Well, we'll just get a new car. This purse. We'll just get a new purse. That's option one is just keep searching This is how you become a foolish person, he says. (laughs) Option two is you settle down and you manage your expectations. Look, you're not supposed to feel that satisfied with life, all right? Just get a job and do your job and come home. And you probably won't like your wife most days, but just stick to it because, you know, we can't operate a society if everybody quits their job every, you know, two months. And so just buckle down. And do what you're supposed to do. Quit complaining about it. That's option two, which he says is a better option than option one. But then there's option three. And option three is you begin to recognize that the things in this earth were not designed to be able to satisfy the thirst that your soul feels when it gets dry. And so instead, you begin to thirst for God. Here's what he says. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The psalmist has come to see that he is made for another world. He is made for God. And so when he begins to feel dry, he doesn't say, My soul thirsts for a new job. My soul thirsts for a new wife. He says, as the deer long for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. 
He knows that God is the only one who can satisfy. He has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And so when he gets dry, he knows who to seek. Do you believe that? If you feel dry and God feels distant, first you have to decide if you really believe God will satisfy you. Are you longing for God or are you longing for something else? That's the first thing to do is wrestle that question. Thirst for God. Here's number two. When you feel dry and God feels distant, pour out your heart to God. Pour out your heart to God. Look at verse four. I remember this as I pour out my heart. This psalmist here is pouring out his feelings to God. You may not be a touchy-feely person. That's okay. You still have feelings. What are they? Talk to God about them. Look at what the psalmist does. Verse six, he says, I am deeply depressed. He's naming it. Verse 10. It says, my adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones. He's saying, I feel crushed right now. I'm embarrassed. I'm defeated. I'm insecure. He pours out his feelings to God. He also pours out his questions to God. He asks some of the same questions that we ask. Look at verse two. He says, when can I come and appear before God? In other words, how long is this going to last? Do you ever ask that question? You have permission to ask that question. Are we there yet? You can't ask dad that question on a road trip but you can ask your heavenly father, how long, oh Lord, are you going to forget about us forever? When can I come and appear before God? He asks. He also asks God, why? Look at verse nine. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? Why is this stuff happening? Why are you working this way? You have permission to ask that question. He also pours out his requests to God. Verse one of chapter 43, he says, vindicate me, God, and champion my cause. Rescue me. Verse three, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. He's saying, God, show that you're with me. Prove I'm not crazy. Prove that your way is right. Give me wisdom. Show me the way. 
He's pouring out his feelings to God. He's pouring out his questions to God. He's pouring out his requests to God. He is pouring out his heart to God. The irony is, he says he doesn't feel God, but he writes this beautiful song to God. Part of what it means to keep the faith is simply to keep showing up. That's what the psalmist is doing. God, why have you forgotten me? He asks in verse nine. Then in 43, verse two, it's the exact same verse, except for he changed one word. Instead of why have you forgotten? He says, why have you rejected me? But he's still writing the song. He keeps showing up. Even if you get nothing out of worship, don't miss it. Even if you get nothing out of the sermon, don't miss it. Even if you get nothing out of your Bible reading, don't miss it. Even if you get nothing out of the prayer, don't miss it. Even if your prayer is simply, God, I feel nothing while I'm praying to you, don't miss it. Psalm 42 and 43 is this beautiful song written by a man who says he doesn't feel God at all. And yet it's one of the most emotionally connected Psalms in the Bible. There is nothing you need to be afraid of saying to God. One of Esther's little books that she has. Um, It's called, Did God Learn His ABCs? by Amy, Amy Gannett. And it, it's a great book, but in it, she says, if your brain's full of secrets, twisted up like spaghetti, just tell them to God, he knows them already. The reason I'm getting emotional reading that is because when I read this book to Esther, this is what I want for her so badly. There will be days when her little mind gets twisted up like spaghetti and she doesn't know which way's up and which way's down and which way's right and which way's wrong and who to trust and who to listen to and what to do. And in those moments, God does not just leave us and say, figure it out. Instead, he invites us, tell me those things. Tell me. I know them already. But it's the process of just telling him what he already knows that begins to bring refreshment to our soul. So, Number one, thirst for God. Number two, pour out your heart to God. How do you keep the faith when you feel dry and God feels distant? Here's number three. Remember God. Now that seems maybe, what, what does that even mean? Well, look at what he says in verse six. He says, I am deeply depressed. Therefore, I remember you. Because I'm feeling this way, I'm going to remember you. 
I'm going to think about you. I'm going to fix my mind on you. And the psalmist remembers who God is. Look at some of the things that the psalmist calls God in this psalm. Verse two, he says, I thirst for God, the living God. Do you believe that God is living? He's the living God. You may feel dead inside. God is alive. He calls God my savior three times. Verse five, put your hope in God for I will still praise him, my savior and my God. There's a fly on this thing up here right now. That has never happened to me before. Um, Interesting. Okay. Uh, It's going to be on there for a while. You can keep track of it though, if you wouldn't mind and let me know if it comes back. Kind of makes me self-conscious a little bit, but it's okay. Um, All right. Um, What am I talking about? Yeah. uh, He calls God my savior three times. Um, He knows that God is the one who saves his people. And if God saves his people, he will save me. The psalmist knows that. The psalmist calls God my God four times. Think about the audacity of that. That's a pretty personal thing to do. He's my God. This is one of the reasons people are mocking him. Oh, okay. Your God. You mean the one who's abandoned you and let your life become a total joke. But he's still saying that he's my God. That's who he is. He's my God not just because I have chosen to follow him. He's my God first and foremost because he has pledged himself to me. He's my God. He calls God the Lord, verse eight, or Yahweh. This is God's covenant name. We talked about it during the book of Exodus. This is the psalmist way of saying, God is the one who is. It may seem like everything's falling apart, but my God is constant. My God is the one who is. My God is the covenant making God. My God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My God is the God who delivered his people out of Egypt. My God is the Lord. He calls God my rock in verse nine and my refuge in 43 verse two. By calling God a rock and a refuge, he's saying something about who God is. God is unshakable. God is immovable. God is never changing. I may be fluctuating, but he's not. I may be defeated, but he has never called a truce ever. And he won't. He's telling himself these things because I'm deeply depressed. He says, therefore, I remember you. I'm going to remember who you are. He remembers who God is. He also remembers God's redemption in history. Look again at verse eight. 
He says, the Lord will send his faithful love by day. His song will be with me in the night. Now that's a little obscure of a reference, but he's referencing the Exodus story. The way that God was with his people by day and with them in the night, he's saying the God who did that for the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt will do it for me. He's reminding himself of the story of the Bible. This is one of the strategies for remembering who God is. Hebrews chapter 11 is the quintessential example of this. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to God's faithfulness. Remember what God has done. Remember what God did for people that you trust. Look at verse four. He says, I remember this as I pour out my heart, how I walked with many. Why does he say that? He's reminding himself of the community of faith. We used to be excited to go into God's temple to worship. We used to be excited about that. And there were other people there with me. This is not just my faith. This is our faith. I remember doing this with many. This is one of Paul's strategies in Philippians 3. He says, observe those who walk according to the example you have in us. Remember the faith of people you trust. Um, a few years ago, um, I've told you a small part of this story before, but a few years ago, um, we didn't have a lot of money and um, yet I still felt like I was supposed to give and uh, tithe to the church that I was at at the time. And I had all kinds of reasons why I didn't think that made sense. But as I was thinking about, should I do this or not? I remembered multiple stories my dad had told me when I was a little kid about times where literally he's having to pray for God to give him money. He walks out to the mailbox and there's a check in the mail, those kinds of stories. And one of the things that strengthened my faith that allowed me to just say, okay, we're going to do this, even though I don't really see how it makes sense, was just the faith of my dad, of hearing stories of how God had come through for my dad. When you feel dry and God feels distant, remember the stories of faith from people that you trust. That's what the psalmist is doing. That's why tonight in our members meeting, we're going to have a time where somebody, one of the members of our church just shares their testimony. Simply for the fact, not because it's like, oh, they've got one of those cool testimonies, but simply because it's encouraging to our faith when we hear people share their story of faith. So remember what God has done for people you trust and Remembering God means remembering what God has done for you. This psalmist remembers in verse four, the joy and the gratitude that he had worshiping God. There was a time in his life where he was absolutely confident God was working in his life. There was no denying at, at that time. And as the famous quote goes, 
Never doubt in the darkness what you knew to be true in the light. Remember what God has done for you when you feel dry and God feels distant. This psalmist has come to see that God is working in his life, even in the hard things. Look at verse seven. He says, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. Now, I had to think about this verse a lot because it doesn't really make sense to me. I don't know what that means, deep calls to deep. Or, um, but the, the imagery here is the psalmist is standing underneath a waterfall and this massive waterfall is just dumping on him. And have you ever stood underneath a waterfall before? You know how loud it is? You're trying to talk to the person next to you and you're like yelling because it's so loud. Maybe you've been to um, Snoqualmie Falls. Is that what it's called? You walk down there? Yeah, okay. I'm local, uh, local. Um, and if you've ever gotten close, you know how loud it is. And the psalmist says, that's what's happening to me. I can't focus. I can't hear anything. I can't. I can't get going with my life because I'm overwhelmed by this, this water that's just dumping on me. It's too loud to concentrate. I'm overwhelmed. The deep is calling to deep with the roar of the waterfall. And who is the one in the waterfall? He says, it's your waterfalls, all your breakers and your billows have swept over me. This is the same kind of idea that Jonah references when he's in the belly of a fish. The psalmist has come to see God's hand at work, even in the hard things. God is not powerless to stop bad things from happening. Instead, he is sovereignly working even as bad things happen. And he's doing that in order to bring about your good. The psalmist wrestles with that. But in the end, he, he keeps his faith because he remembers who God is and what God has done. How do you keep the faith when you feel dry and God feels distant? Here's number four. Preach to your soul. Preach to your soul. Look at the chorus of this psalm. Verse five. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Verse 11. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. Verse 5, chapter 43. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. What is the psalmist doing? 
He's not only praying to God, he's also preaching to himself. The psalmist, maybe like you and like me, wakes up in the morning and his soul is immediately telling him all kinds of things. You're a loser. You're no good. You're guilty. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be embarrassed. You should be humiliated. You're weak. The psalmist has learned to take control of the conversation. Do you ever wake up and feel like you've forgotten everything you knew about God? I feel that way many mornings. One of my disciplines now is I just don't even look at my email after I've gone to bed and until I get into my car and start driving to the office. Right before I, I leave, I'll look so that I can think about some things. But I've just learned I, I can't look at my email when I'm getting ready in the morning, before I get ready. It just, it overwhelms me. But I wake up and my soul's telling me all kinds of stupid things. The psalmist has learned to take control of the conversation, to preach to his soul. And we have to learn to do the same thing. D.L. Moody once said, somebody asked him, why do you say you need to be filled by the spirit every day? Don't you already have the Holy Spirit? Aren't you a Christian? And he said, because I leak. I leak. And man, do I leak. And one of the ways that the spirit of God encourages our soul is when we preach the gospel to ourselves. Hearing with faith is how the spirit works. So look at what he says. First, he asks himself a question. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? There's a debate about whether or not this is like a criticism or whether this is a real question. I don't know. I think it could be both. What's going on with you, soul? I think that's a valuable question to ask. What are you feeling? Why are you in such turmoil? You woke up feeling this way. What's going on? But that's not where the conversation with your soul ends. Next, he says, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. For I will still praise him, my savior and my God. What does it mean to preach to your soul? It means to remind yourself of what's true about you because of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and his resurrection. Romans chapter eight would be a great place to learn to do this. You could start in verse 31. You could say this to your soul. If God is for you today, soul, who can be against you? There will be people who get mad at you and offended by you today. And guess what? Who cares? God is for you. 
Now, hear my heart in that. That's not an excuse to just be a jerk to people and not care about people, okay? Absolutely, we need to live with peace with everyone and yada, yada. All that stuff's important. The point here, though, is you can't allow that stuff to control how your soul feels. If God is for us, who can be against us? What does he go on to say? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you. How will he not also graciously give you all things, soul? You're worried that you're not going to get your way with this one small project at work and you're in your head about, okay, if I say this to this person, this to this person, this to this person, then maybe we could get our, who cares? Look, at the end of the day, God is going to graciously give you all things. So be hopeful today. Your life is not a slave to how everything works out in this little office space today. There is something much bigger and much more eternal. Who can bring a charge against you? It is God who justifies. And even more than that, it's Christ who condemns. And there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Who shall separate you soul from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Should the fact that wars are going on, will that separate you from the love of Christ? Preach to your soul. Don't let your soul have the final word. Take control of the conversation. That's what the psalmist has learned to do. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Learn to preach to your soul. And that leads us to number five. And that is sing. How do you keep the faith when you feel dry and God feels distant, sing. Look at what he says in 43 verse four. Then I will come to the altar of God, to God, my greatest joy. I will praise you with the lyre, God, my God. This is a songwriter and he says, we're gonna sing a song to you again, God. Sing. That's what we're going to practice right now. Would you pray with me? Father, Father, I know that there are burdens in the room that are so deep. God, there are people standing under waterfalls right now. And yet they feel dry. God, I ask that you would help them to thirst for you, the living God. God, would you give them permission to pour out their heart to you? Would you remind them of who you are and what you've done? Would you teach them to become preachers? And God, would we sing 
It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?